Yeah, junior Church, you can head out to the South Wing, all right? South Wing Junior Church. Title time will still be downstairs as it has been. Would you just briefly pray with me before we begin uh, this morning? Lord, I want to thank you for your goodness. I want to thank you that you are king over all. I want to thank you today that we can come together to worship you, come together to read your word, to study your word, to know you better. Would you help us today to have a clear view of who you are? And in the midst of that clear view, would we be able to worship you as our king and our savior? And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, right off the bat, um, I've already had several people approach me uh, asking about the title of today's sermon. Uh, the answer is no, I have not watched Game of Thrones, and the answer is no, you shouldn't watch Game of Thrones. All right, so let's just get that clear, and let's move on from there. Um, but the the TV show that some of you may have heard of, Game of Thrones, and as I said, not recommending it in any way, shape, or form. However, the plot line is basically a bunch of kingdoms fighting for supremacy. And that is what today's sermon is going to be all about. We're going to be looking at royalty, we're going to be looking at various thrones, we're going to be looking at kings, and we're going to see that there is a real battle even for kingship and for a kingdom uh, that is trying to be grasped. And then we're going to be introduced, of course, to the true king who is Jesus. And so that is a little picture of where we're going as we see this battle of whose throne will be the throne that will last and that will stand. And so uh, before we get to Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, which we will be there uh, this morning, uh, let's do a tiny bit of introduction and some review. If you haven't been with us, we have been going through the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, as we've looked at, is going to show us that Jesus is the one who brings the heavenly kingdom to earth. He brings the heavenly kingdom to earth. And we looked at that in chapter 1 so far, and now we're going to be entering chapter 2 today. But in chapter 1, we see a genealogy uh, followed by the birth narrative of Jesus. And what we see in chapter 1 is that Jesus is the Davidic king of the Jews, who would save his people from sin as he is our Emmanuel. So he's the Davidic king. We see that through the, uh, through the genealogy. There is no question that it's been orchestrated so that Jesus, as he's born, is going to be in the line of David and therefore is the rightful king of Israel. He is the rightful king of the Jews. And as we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, which we'll see today, not only king of the Jews, but he would go on and be king of the world, king of everywhere. But as the king, he would save his people. That's his name, Jesus. He will save his people from sin. And then we looked at, we ended by looking at the idea that he is then our Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God with us. He is king, he is a savior, and he is with us. And those are things that we are going to hold on through all throughout the rest of this book. So as we go through, we're going to see these themes over and over again, and today is no different. So today in chapter 2, today Jesus is the king of kings who will rule the nations. Not only is he king of the Jews, he is king of kings. 
He is my king. He is your king. He is the world's king. And we will look at that today as we see this familiar passage that many times we come to on around Christmas time. Usually, even a lot of times, it'll happen the week after Christmas as we talk about the three wise men. Uh, and that's where we'll be starting today. And with that in mind, let us read our passage this morning from chapter 2 of Matthew, first 12 verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had uh, seen when it rose before them until it came to the rest... I'm sorry, it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So as I said, today we're going to be looking at the idea that Jesus is king. But there is a battle of kings going on. There is a battle of thrones. But we know that Jesus will win this battle. But let's today look at three thrones that we're going to talk about. And the first one... Uh, we're going to go right to the main characters, in a sense, of this passage. Although, I say main characters because they're talked about. But in reality, we know that the main character, the one who really matters, what really matters from this passage is Jesus, the child king. But we're going to start by talking about the three kings. Notice I put those in quotes when we say the three kings. So we're starting with those kings, but let's be careful before we call them kings. Many of us have sung the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. But there is nothing in this text that would tell us that these men are are actually kings of any kingdoms. They're called wise men, or the word is used is magi. So we see here that these three kings, the magi, okay, that's what we're going to call them. They're the wise men, they're magi. We'll explain maybe a little bit of what they are and who they are, but they're most likely not kings. They're not ruling over nations but for some reason, we've called them that basically because of their wealth. But we see the Magi are introduced to us, and the Magi seek to worship the king of the Jews. As you notice, they come into the scene. He's, Jesus is born, and then they say, Wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They are coming on a mission. They are searching for who they call the king of the Jews. Now, this should strike us as a little odd. These magi 
are wise men or astrologers from the east. Many commentators believe this would be from the area of Babylon. Again, we're not exactly sure where they're from. We're not told exactly what province they might be coming from. But we do know that they've made a journey, that they are seemingly, from all we can tell, not Jewish. Uh, they are coming from another area, another nation. They are coming and they are astrologers. They've been studying the stars. And we're going to see in a minute that they followed a star, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now, these magi would have no doubt had wealth and influence. We see that based on the fact that they had the ability to travel such a distance. And then not only that, but the type of gifts that they give Jesus are not just what you'd find at Babies R Us, right? This is, this is, these are expensive, rare, honestly, things that they're giving to the baby Jesus, uh, the, the child Jesus. And so we get to this point and we see that yes, they are wealthy, influential people, most likely not kings, but as wise men, just think about their role, even the wise men we know of as we read the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Daniel and the wise men that were there were, were the, the main, uh, advisors to the, to the rulers. They had power and influence and they were wealthy and all of those things. And these men have now traveled to come see a child in Bethlehem. Doesn't seem to make sense. Now here's the other thing when I say the three kings, there's also nothing here that tells us that there's only three. You probably have heard that before. But I would also say this, there's there's nothing that tells us it's not three. Like maybe it was three, maybe it was 30, maybe it was 3,000. We don't really know how many of them are coming at this point. But again, if we get lost in trying to figure out how many they were, we're missing out on the point of this passage. No matter how many of these Wise men, these magi are here, they have come for a purpose, to seek the king of the Jews, to worship him. How did they know? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. So they follow a star. So they followed a star. So they were seeking to worship the king of the Jews. What started their their search was a star. Now again, there's lots and lots of speculation on what this star is. Some people say it's planets that were aligning together. Some people say it was a special star only for a certain amount of time. Some people say it was just an ordinary star that just happened to catch their attention. Some people say it was a supernatural star like an angel. The thing is, we don't exactly know what this was, but whatever it was, was something that the wise men would look at and know something special is happening. We need to follow this. And not only that, they would have to know that it's going to lead them to the king of the Jews. Remember, they don't come into Herod saying, hey, uh, you know, there's this star hanging over Jerusalem. We think something's going on. What might be going on? No, they came. They knew what they were there for. And so they've been following this star. So maybe, and most likely, and this is what a lot of people would think, maybe they were drawn back to the even the passage in the book of Numbers. Uh, the book of Numbers talks about the coming king of the Jews. And in that passage... They may have been familiar with that in Numbers twenty four seventeen, the first part. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So this passage is in the Old Testament, and no doubt probably these wise men would have had access to the Old Testament. Why do we believe that? Well, think about it. If they are from the Babylon area, or even in the east at some point, they would have been influenced by the Jews that were there, that were probably even still there, but the Jews that were there during the uh, deportation, deportation, during the exile. And and maybe even, this might even be a, a 
down the line from Daniel. Daniel may have shared these type of passages, and we don't know exactly how they would know something like this. But again, let's not worry about it too much. What we do know is that somehow, some way, they knew that the king of the Jews, who was a king of all kings, was going to be born when they saw this star, and they come searching for him. So it's interesting, it seems weird that these guys show up, but there's a reason for it, and we'll get that get to that point. Because there's been prophecy all through scripture that not only would Jesus, the Messiah, not only would the Messiah be the king of Israel, but the king of all the world. And we're going to see that as we continue to look at this passage. But then also, let's not miss what we see these wise men doing. Alright, so not only are they seeking to worship the king of the Jews, and then they followed the star, when they do find Jesus, they worship Jesus. After finding him, they give him gifts, they bow in worship, they had fulfilled their mission. They weren't coming to find Jesus to figure out how they could use it for their own advantage. They weren't coming to find Jesus to get rid of Jesus. They weren't coming just in Curiosity, they were coming to worship the king of kings. And they do that. We can't miss that they take the opportunity. This is a child. And again, many of you will know this. Uh, we get this picture in the nativity a lot of times that the wise men show up right at the time of Jesus' birth. It seems by all indicators here, because there seems to be time that have gone by, Mary and Joseph are living in a house, that it seems like it's been a, a year or two or in somewhere in that range. We see that Herod will end up murdering all the babies that are two years old and under. So Jesus would have been in that bracket. We're not exactly sure. But in either case, whether a toddler or still an infant, these men of renown, these men who have so much influence are coming and bowing before a child. This had to be strange for Mary and Joseph. It had to be strange for Jesus, right? Especially if he's old enough to kind of figure out something's going on. Like, this is, this is a cool scene. These men with all this wealth and all this influence are there to worship Jesus. Before he's done anything, he's just a child. Before he's done anything, it's not about what he's done, but it's about the promise that was made and they knew there was something special and they worshiped him. And so we see our first throne was the three kings. And I would say they weren't fighting for their throne. They were willing to give up whatever influence they would have in order to worship the true king. But then we're introduced to our second throne. We're introduced to our second king in this story. And that is Herod the king. We're told in this passage uh, here that the, the wise men come to King Herod. Herod the king. And he asked, he's, they say, where is the, where is the, been born the king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have worshipped him, come to worship him. Then Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So why might King Herod be troubled by a child being born? Well, think about this. These men have not come to see King Herod. This had to be a little bit of a shot, right? Like, oh, okay, these guys are coming. Maybe they're going to come to talk to me, to give me gifts. No, that's not what they're there for. They're saying, hey, where is the one who has been king, born king of the Jews? Now, at this point, Herod is the king of the Jews in a very physical, temporary way. And so now there's got to be some confusion. There's got to be some anger. And we see that he is troubled. I would say it this way. Herod is threatened. Herod is threatened by who he will call the Christ, 
Notice that after the wise men come and they say, "Who? where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? He assembles the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. Make no... Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. Herod knew that the guy, the person that the wise men had come to find was not just another king, but this was the Messiah, the anointed one. Herod had enough knowledge of the Jewish religion, although from all accounts, Herod was not following Jewish religion, but he knew enough of it to know that this Whatever was happening was a big deal and he's troubled and he's trying to figure out what's going on because his throne is being threatened. Now, a little bit about Herod that we, that maybe you already know, but Herod was a puppet king, uh, from Rome, basically. Rome installed him as being a king over Israel and so he was going to do whatever it took to keep Rome happy and to keep himself rich and happy and ruling well. Uh, he built lots of things, uh, in Jerusalem. He was very wealthy and he built up the city and he did a lot of really good things if you're looking at it from the outside in. But in the midst of that, uh, Herod was known to be ruthless. He killed his own family members that if he felt like they were threatening his throne. The, he was one of the most ruthless kings you would ever know. You're going to see that in, just a, in the next section when we see what he does as a result of not knowing who Jesus is. He sends out people to kill every child two years old and under. That is a wicked, terrible king, but he's doing it all to preserve himself. And so the second throne we see that he he is fighting for his throne and the idea that the Messiah has been born would take everything away from him. He would lose everything. He would lose uh, his hope in Rome. He would lose his love from the people, which wasn't really there, but at least their devotion, their uh, their fear. He would lose all of that. He knew that this child could be the end of his power and his influence And so here's an interesting thought. We don't see it in this passage, but we know from the context because he's going to go out and kill children to try to wipe the Messiah off the face of the earth. We see here that although he's saying some of the right things, like I want to go worship him later on as he says to the wise men, or he's saying, oh, where is the Christ? And then he gets the information he wants. He knows that the Christ is around and he has a choice to make. He could say, finally, the Christ is here. The Messiah is here. I should find him and worship him too. But that's not what his goal is. So we see the next part. So Herod is threatened by the Christ. We know that Herod is someone who will take any means necessary to preserve his throne. And so he starts, though, by asking for information. He asked for information. First of all, he asked the wise men. He says, what time did you see the star? He's trying to figure out about what age the child would be. See, he's not stupid. He gets this. He understands. He's trying to figure out what can I do to get rid of this threat. And so he finds out how old this child would be. And then uh, he asked the wise men, or he asked his scribes and, and those who are with him and the priests, where is this Messiah supposed to show up? Where is he going to come from? And he finds out the answer. He asked his religious leaders, and this is interesting, they knew the answer. They they paraphrase Micah 5, verse 2. Uh, and uh, in Micah 5, we see that there this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah and how he would indeed be born and come from Bethlehem. 
uh, to bring peace to not only Jerusalem, but also to the whole world. I'm not going to unpack Micah 5 today, simply because uh, Pastor Justin did a great job of that during our Advent season last December. And so if you want to know more about this prophecy in specific, and you want to go and look at more of Micah chapter 5, and we will actually look at it briefly later, but if you want to do that, then you can do that on your own. I would look back into our YouTube or on our website. But I will read it real quickly as we get the context of what is being said here. Micah 5, 2 through 4. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, for you are too little among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when he, she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So the religious leaders know this. Don't miss this. They, they know this. But they know it up here, but what do they do about it? They don't go to search him out. They don't go to find him like the wise men have been trying to do. The wise men are seeking to worship him. And the religious leaders, I I, I tend to think the, the, the religious leaders have to know what Herod's up to. That Herod is up to this idea that he wants to get rid of this Christ figure. And yet, they don't stop him. They give him the information he wants. And they don't do anything about it. I think, I have to say, it seems to me that they are complicit in trying to preserve their power and influence as well. Because if you'll see throughout all the New Testament, who are the biggest opponents to Jesus' ministry? Well, it's almost always the religious people. It's the Pharisees, it's the Sadducees, it's the priests, it's the scribes, it's all of those who want to preserve their own religious power. And so we see that happening here as well. They knew what they needed to know, but they did not act upon it in obedience. Instead, they were helping an evil king. Now notice also, there's not to be lost here when it says, He shall shepherd my people Israel. Just real quickly, I want us to look at 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, this is when David is going to be anointed as king over Israel. And in 2 Samuel 5, we see the idea that David's kingship was the same as being called a shepherd. Uh, 2 Samuel 5, 1-2. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and bring us in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be a prince over Israel. Again, as Pastor Justin pointed out over the last few weeks, the whole Old Testament is pointing us towards this time in which the ultimate fulfillment of David's kingship would be seen. And that is the person in the person of the Messiah who we know is Jesus. And so we go back to 2 Samuel and we see that David was a ruler but also called a shepherd. And so again, we see that Jesus is fulfilling all that the Old Testament have been pointing us to throughout all of this. So Herod is seeking information so that he can have the upper hand But notice he wants information. He doesn't want salvation. He doesn't want to find the hope that is in the Messiah. He wants to wipe him out. And so then he goes to the next step and he manipulates with evil intentions. He manipulates with evil intentions. So he seems to convince the Magi to be his spies. 
basically says, go, find the child, come back, tell me where he is so that I can worship him too. I don't know what his tone was when he said that, if he was really trying to uh, convince them that he was a good guy or what was going on. But we know from the context that is not what he wants to do. He is not looking to go to worship Jesus. He is looking to go kill him. And so he tells the wise men, go find out where he is. Which also, by the way, speaks of some laziness. I don't understand why he didn't say, hey, let me go along with you. I don't really know. But the point is, he sends them to be his spies. And it seems like they're going to do that until they're warned later on in the passage to go home another way, which they do. He seems to convince them, but... And it's, seen, it's obvious from the rest of this passage that he is trying to take control of the situation. He is trying to take, take control, preserve his throne, do whatever it takes to be as sneaky and manipulative as possible to get his way and to preserve his power. But as we see, as we continue on in the book of Matthew, we continue on in this chapter, at the very end, as I said in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. Herod didn't have the power to destroy the Messiah, and here is an opportunity again where he thinks he's going to get the upper hand, but they're warned through a dream, God intervenes, and they don't go back and report where the child is. Now, unfortunately, this is going to cause Herod to jump into a crazy tirade and end up doing the unthinkable and killing children in his own kingdom to try to protect his own throne. But we see the evil here. We see the evil that is in this world and in this story. King Herod was not willing to submit to the true king. Instead, he wanted to take him out. So that brings us to our third throne in this passage. Obviously, then, the first throne was the three kings that aren't really kings, and maybe not three. Then there's throne two, which is King Herod. And now the third throne is the one that's most important, the one that really we need to focus on, and that is the throne of King Jesus. King Jesus. How do we know that this child who's living with Mary and Joseph, who's been born, our Emmanuel, Jesus who would save his people from their sins, from the Davidic line. How is it that we see this, that he is indeed the ultimate king? He is the king of all. And we see that he is first the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. We read Micah 5 earlier where it talked about that the ruler over Israel that would shepherd Israel would come from Bethlehem. But I didn't read the end of Micah 5 verse 4. Okay, so remember, this I read the beginning part, but I didn't read the, read the back. So let's read this. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. Watch this. To the ends of the earth. Jesus' kingship is not just about being king of the Jews. The beginning of this passage, we're told that the king of the Jews is being sought. But then we're led to understand that the king of the Jews is just another way of saying the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is anointed to rule over not only Israel but the whole world. And we even get a glimpse of that even in the quoting of Micah chapter 5. They didn't go that far to get to this point, but the rest of Micah 5 in that verse 4 tells us his name is going to be great in all of the earth. And so, yes, we see that he was born in Bethlehem. He came from Bethlehem. He fulfills that prophecy. He fulfills the pattern of the Davidic kings all the way through the Old Testament. And now we continue to see 
that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. And he's not only king of the Jews, but king of the world. The, the wise men show us that. They came from another nation. They came from other places. And they traveled to worship him because he is the king over all and not just those in Jerusalem. That'll play out in our lives as well as we look at this. But there's more prophecy besides Micah chapter 5. I want to read you a passage from Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, and I want to draw this out because there's a couple of key words here that kind of just draw a connection to our passage. But Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. Again, prophecy over what would come when the Lord takes his rightful rule over the world. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you the wealth of the nations shall come to you a multitude of camels shall cover you the young camels of Midian and Ephah all those from Sheba shall come and they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news the praises of the Lord again this whole passage is talking about how the whole world will be under the rule of King Messiah And so we know as Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the fulfillment of the Messiah. He is to be ruler over the world. And gold and frankincense are what's going to come from the nations. And two of the gifts that are given are gold and frankincense. That can't just be a coincidence. We'll talk about the gifts in just a moment. So not only is he the fulfillment of prophecy. And by the way, there's other prophecies too. I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, just jot down Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a psalm that was most likely used during coronation of Davidic kings. But it talks about the fact that the whole world will be blessed through the king of Israel. And so he is the ultimate king, and therefore he will bless the whole world. Again, that's in Psalm 72. And there's so many other places we could look. Moving on then, though, we see that King Jesus is not only fulfilled in prophecy, he is worthy of worship. The fact that the wise men came to worship him, again, a child, he has done nothing in the sense of what he's done on this earth to deserve worship. He's not already a king that has any authority. He has not done any amazing miracles that we know of. He, he's relatively unknown in the sense that even in his own town, people aren't really knowing who he is. That's evidenced by the fact that six miles away in Jerusalem, nobody knows that he's around until the wise men show up. And yet, even at that time, because of who he is, not about what he's done, but who he is, he is worthy of worship. We see that there is humility in the, in the, in the wise men, in the presence of the ruler of the kingdom. And so, just as we think about this, he's worthy of our worship. If he's worthy of theirs, he's worthy of ours. We worship him in humility. We bow in the presence of the ruler of the world. That's what we are called to do because he is worthy of worship. But again, Jesus has done so much for us. He has given us life. He died. He rose again so that we could be saved from our sins and be forgiven. But it's not even just about what he did that we worship him about. 
So many times we can get stuck in that and just think, God, thank you for doing this for me. And yes, that's good. We should thank him for what he does, but we should also thank him for who he is. He's a loving, gracious, good God, a savior who gave up everything on our behalf. And he is the ruler. He is the Messiah. He is the savior. He is God. And we praise him for that, not just about how it affects me, but how, who he is and the Wise men come and they worship him because he's worthy of worship. Not because he had to earn their worship, but because he was worthy of it. And he still is today. And we see not only is he worthy of worship, but he's worthy worthy of gifts. So we see the wise men bringing very expensive gifts to Jesus. Now, again, I don't want to get caught too much in figuring out all the symbolism of all these gifts. There's been a lot of people who have studied that and they think that there's really big symbols in these gifts and maybe there are and maybe there aren't. But I think the point here is very obvious that these men were giving up the very best for Jesus. They were giving the very best for him. And yes, gold often was a gift given to royalty. And frankincense is usually used in worship of deity. And myrrh, although... This one is not seen in what the passage we just read in Isaiah 60, but myrrh is usually used to anoint people for burial. So maybe part of this is to show that he is king, that he is God, and that he is man. Or maybe it's to show that he is ruler, and he is also uh, the priest, and he is also going to be killed. I may, Maybe. Maybe not. But either way, he's worthy of the very best gifts that these men have. And yes, of course, we know looking back, we can see what Jesus did through the rest of his life. And yes, those things are all true. That he is the king, he is the priest, he does die for our sins, he is buried, but then he rises again. So that he is the eternal ruler over all the world. So we see King Jesus, no question, prophesied by the whole Old Testament. Micah is just one of the many places We see in Isaiah 60, we can see in so many other places, look at a lot of the Psalms. Jesus is the Messiah. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of our best. He's worthy of our very best. So let's look at some implications this morning as we start to wind down. So the implications this morning as we look at this passage, the Game of Thrones, if you will, the the kings that are battling. We see Three kings that do the right thing. We see one king that is evil and looking to preserve himself. And then we see the rightful king who is king over all and worthy of all worship. And what we learn from this is that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the nations. Now this is ideal and interesting that this is what's coming out as we're about ready to go into our missions emphasis starting next week. Jesus is not just king of one people. He is not just the ruler of one people. He is the king and ruler over everything. He is the king of kings. The Magi were a representation, I believe, of the world coming to worship Jesus, that all the nations would be reached through Jesus. If you remember from even about probably a year, year and a half ago, we looked at Psalm chapter 2. It shows us that he is the one and only king. He's the one and only king over all the world and all other kingdoms will bow to him. I don't want us to miss this. 
I heard this statement once. I don't know where it came from, so I can't give credit for credit is due. But if you find somebody else saying it, you can tell me who it was. But he said, people talk about making Jesus Lord of their life or making Jesus King of their life. We don't make Jesus Lord. We don't make Jesus King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. It's about how we respond to that, which will be our next point in just a moment. Jesus is the king of the nations and therefore he wants to reach all people with his glory, reach all people with his influence and he wants to save the world. He wants to save the nations. I find it interesting, I think Pastor Justin also referred to this, but if you go all the way to the back of the book of Matthew, the back of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, as we go there we're going to see that Matthew ends kind of the way it begins. Listen to what Jesus says. If right at the very end, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, all the way to verse 20, how does the gospel of Matthew end? Well, it ends where it began, where it began. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice that all authority, that's the idea. He rules over everything. So then, if all authority is Jesus's, what is the next step? It says, go therefore and make disciples of All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice all the pieces that are here in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. It's everything we've already talked about in Matthew chapter 1 and now partly into Matthew chapter 2. We see here that he is, he has all authority, So that we would reach all nations. Again, all authority over all nations. And then this idea at the very end. Behold, I am with you always. That reminds us of Emmanuel. You see the beginning of Matthew and the end of Matthew. It all sinks together. And that's why as we go through this book, it's such a beautiful picture of Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And that kingdom is for all nations. And so we see here again that Jesus is not only king of the Jews, he is king of the nations, he is king of kings. So if that is true, which it is, we must respond then. We must respond to Jesus' kingship one way or another. We must respond to Jesus' kingship one way or the other. So there's a couple different ways. We can submit and worship him. We could submit to and worship him like the Magi did. They sought Jesus. They sought the king and they worshipped the king. Do you seek Jesus every day? Even if you already know him, but do you truly seek him? Do you seek him in order to worship him and give him all the honor, all the praise, all the glory that he is due? So we can submit to him, we can worship him like the Magi. There's another one in here that maybe we didn't talk about too much, but... We can ignore him like the religious leaders seem to. We can just ignore the fact that he's the king. Oh yeah, the king's gonna be, yeah, he's gonna come from Bethlehem. Those religious leaders, they could have gone and they could have worshipped him, they could have found their Messiah, but instead they were content to stay with Herod and they were content to just give information. So they ignored him. So we can submit to his kingship or we can ignore his kingship or we can outright rebel against his kingship. We can outright rebel against him to preserve our own throne. Because make no mistake about it, we all like to sit on our own throne. We might not have a nation that we oversee. We might not even have a large group that we are over. 
We might be what we think the lowest of lowest in society, but we can still have thrones. That throne is to say, I am going to be the controller. I'm going to be the king of my own life. And we can rebel against God and we can say, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. My throne is what's important. I will do whatever it takes to maintain my control and my power over my own life. Jesus, stay out. That is another option. So we can submit to his kingship. We can ignore his kingship. We can rebel against his kingship. Ultimately, Jesus tells us what we should do. Jesus tells us what we should do about his kingship. We're going to go over to another gospel. We're going to look at John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Towards the end of Jesus' life, before he would give everything, the king, ruler of the universe, would die, would give his own life. He's before Pilate and has a conversation with Pilate, which is interesting because Jesus himself will say that he has brought this kingdom that we've been talking about. John 18, 33 through 37. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but I might not, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, so you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Will you listen to the king? Will you listen to the king of the kingdom that is not of this world? It's not a Jewish kingdom. It's not an American kingdom. It's not any kingdom in this world. It is a heavenly kingdom that he is bringing day by day. Let us listen to the king. So in conclusion this morning, a couple of questions. The first one is, again, Jesus is king. So do you know him? Do you know the king of the universe? Are you living a life in which you've been your own king and you know that? Jesus, the king of the universe, the king of the nations, it didn't stop just as a child being worshipped in a house in Bethlehem. He continued to live a perfect life that we couldn't live. He lived without sin so that he could show that sin had no power over him. And then not only that, he gave his life. He died on the cross. He was He suffered and died so that he could pay the penalty for our sin, the times that we have put our throne more important than his, the times that we've said, God, on my life, it's about me, it's not about you. And that is what the essence of sin really has been. It's to go against God's will and to follow our own ways. And that sin, whether it's come out in lying or killing or whatever it might be, or pride, it doesn't matter. That sin, Jesus took that on himself. The king of the universe, who was ruler over all died that's not a way to preserve a throne normally right if that would happen in the tv show the king just you know lets himself be killed be like okay that's kind of anticlimactic all right but no that's not what jesus does jesus does he dies for us but then rises again because that's the other piece of this not only does he die to forgive us of our sins but then he rises again so that he's alive right now the king of the universe is not dead 
The king of the universe, just every other king in this world is dead. They're gone. They're not here. Or they won't be for very much longer if they are here, if they're physically living now. But all kings die. But Jesus, as the king of the universe, is alive forever. Because he is ruling right now over this heavenly kingdom that we live in. And so we know this to be true. And so again, do you know him? Do you know that Jesus? Or maybe you just know him as a name. You just know him as a good man. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him. That's the beautiful thing about this king. He doesn't want to just, he's not just putting his thumb down on you and holding you down. But this king wants to know you and love you and save you. And if you have not given your life to Jesus, if you have not come to him and said, Jesus, I'm going to turn away from my sin and turn towards you because I believe in you and who you are and what you've done, please, Lord, save me. Then do that today. And if you haven't and you want more information, please talk to somebody who knows him. We'd love to introduce you to the king. And then the next question is, Jesus is king. Do you worship him? Jesus is king. So today at church, this is a question for our church. Do we worship him? Do we truly worship him? And I'm not just talking about coming together on Sunday mornings and singing a couple songs. That's great. Do that. Come and sing. Come and listen to the word. To the word. Come and fellowship with one another. Do all of that stuff. We've talked about that is what the church is about. But my question isn't about do you come once a week to say a few words or to sing a few songs or do you truly worship the king? Do you truly love him? Do you truly live for him? Do you truly put him first? Or is all the other stuff in life, are you putting that ahead? Are you putting yourself on the throne or are you putting him on the throne by worshiping him and giving him the glory that he deserves? I would implore you to think about that and ask that question and consider it. Pray, ask God, am I worshiping you the way I should? No doubt he will show you the ways that you can worship him more. He's worthy of worship and it's worth our worship to worship him. With those two questions ringing in our mind, I have a video that I am praying will actually work. Because technology, yeah, not so good for me. But we have a video that we're going to show. Maybe you've seen it before. It's an excerpt from a sermon given by a man in the 70s. Uh, S.M. Lockridge, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, love his name. Um, but he talks about Jesus' kingship. And as you watch this video, would you not just watch it and think it's entertaining, but would you watch it and think about these questions? Do you know Jesus? And are you worshiping him today? The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's in turnless form. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. 
He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feet. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. And he'll have no successor. You can't even teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my...